0: Riot League or Arcane or or Valor, whatever it may be, they want it to be a genre-defining experience, right? And this is not just a mantra that that is on the wall. It is something that players feel and every employee of Riot Games, you know, aspire to and are passionate about right? Plus, I think in the long run, it makes a lot of difference. And when it all comes together, and an amazing publishing experience like this, that's a great publishing um, where it, it's very subtle. It's not in your face, but ultimately the players feel great about it. They feel proud to be part of this community.
1: All right, welcome, Jin. Uh, thanks for joining uh, our our show. Um, let me briefly introduce you uh, for those of you who, don't, for, for some of our audience who don't know who you are. Uh, Jin Noh is the former president of worldwide publishing at Riot Games. With your breadth of experience, we, we could cover a lot of interesting topics today. Well, thanks for the
0: introduction, John. I'm uh, very happy to be here today.
1: So the first question I have is, uh, how did you start your career in video games? Mm -hmm.
0: So I started in Blizzard Entertainment in 2005 in the career office as a marketing director. Uh, I've been in the corporate world for several years before that, but I've always wanted to be in video games as a gamer. Um, At the time, you may remember World of Warcraft just launched in the end of 2004 and took the video game world by storm. And also in Korea, what made Blizzard very unique was the fact that Starcraft was the most popular game with esports going on, and it was a game that was called a national pastime, just like baseball was, is in the United States. So you could walk around the street and, and grab a random person, and they would likely know how to play Starcraft with you. Even if you don't play, most people knew what it was, regardless of gender, age, and location. So for me it was a dream job that's how i started and after a few years there i got promoted to managing director of korea and also later on took on the role of managing director of southeast asia
1: great so what would you consider your craft i know you ended up being an executive but i do think even some executives would you know have like a specific craft that they that they started with or, or they continue sure. to hone. sure right now is playing with
0: my kids i would say is my number one craft even playing video games with them but in terms of the professional craft i would say it is international and global publishing and operations
1: great one thing i know this especially when i was working uh in the entertainment world as part of amazon kids is that there are a lot of similar roles and titles but they're just they just have different uh like nomenclature across Mm -hmm. industries like for example product manager, program manager, dev manager, uh, project manager, there's so many different things. Is is publishing essentially the video game version of marketing? And also, is there any like historical context Mm -hmm. that you may have heard of that led the game industry to adopt that term? Sure,
0: sure. So publishing and marketing, I often find are used interchangeably. And they're also defined very differently by individuals and different firms, right? So I haven't seen one definition that is universal. So let me just start off with that, right? But let me talk about my definition of what publishing is and then potentially the background behind that. So my definition of publishing is bringing the game and the game experiences to the players. And I could have examined this in, in two different perspectives. One is a functional perspective. The other is an organizational perspective. Let me start off with a, a functional perspective. When you bring the game and experiences to the players, there are many, many different functions that are involved. Let me just take a few examples. One is localization. Right. Let's say outside of your home market, you need to localize the game into text and voice not only the game itself, but the web, the mobile app, and all the, the, the documents, if you will, that face the players. The other example is, let's say, government relations, right? In some parts of the world, you have to get game licenses to even have the game uh, published or marketed, right? And sometimes you have to work with the government for game ratings, uh, three. The third example may be eSports, right, which is a huge thing now uh, and esports, not only on the professional level, but on an amateur level right? at a, maybe a PC cafe or college tournaments, whatever it may be. Those are all player experiences, right? These are different functions that they do it. Now, the re- one of the reasons why marketing comes up interchangeably with publishing in, you know, in a functional sense is because that's the most obvious, right? When you think about publishing, you think about advertisements. You think about performance marketing, right? That seems like the most obvious. Thus, you sort of use that interchangeably. But what it really is, is marketing is one component of publishing. That's how I define it, right? Just like North America uh, is a continent, but United States is part of North America. Not equal, but sometimes used interchangeably as well. So we talked about the functional, let me talk about the organization. Because there's also a, a confusion, right? you may have different functions, but in companies, you may not organize the same everywhere. Uh, For example, not not all publishing teams, even the one that I ran, had all the functions that I just mentioned, right? Take for example, live services. When you have a a live game, live services is so critical to get your game going. But does that have to be in the publishing team? A lot of times I've seen it in the tech team. Or let's look at the platform, right? people refer it as a publishing platform. Does a publishing team need to have an engineering team that creates it? A lot of times, no, you probably have a tech team that creates it, but that's also considered publishing in a a broader sense, right? So you may be organized differently. So thus, if you look at organizations, sometimes they call it marketing because the marketing team is the only team that is actually non-tech or non-other things, right? So that's one of the potential reasons why it's used interchangeably. But overall, in, in a summary, is publishing is a comprehensive experience of bringing the game and the experiences of the players. And marketing is one component of it, a very important component that feeds into the overall uh, player experience. I
1: have, I have one analogy and then one uh, follow up. The analogy is this really reminds me of the debate for a much smaller topic, which is customer relationship management. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when people think about CRM, they think just email as like one channel of the CRM. And then you mm-hmm. think about, or maybe like a software, like Salesforce, mm-hmm. but, but CRM is the, the actual name and definition itself is the entire relationship Absolutely. life cycle of a customer. So I, I love this, um, your definition of publishing, because I, 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 it aligns with what I believe as well. Yeah. It's a great analogy. Um, well said. And Another follow-up is on the topic of localization. Mm-hmm. I've seen this team before, I've heard about it. From, from someone who's not uh, an expert in localization, you might think it is a very easy job. Mm-hmm. but as I started working with more localization teams later in my career, I realized it's you know it's kind of like an art and a science. It's not just mm-hmm. hiring like a, a contractor or a company mm-hmm. to translate things for you. One good example is, especially now that we live in a world where a lot of the content companies realize that a lot of talent mm-hmm. is not just in English-speaking worlds. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example, really, that I, I everyone kind of acknowledges, really, is, is South Korea. So culturally, I think South Korea is punching above its weight in terms of a country of that size. Mm-hmm. They've won the Oscar. Now they've got, uh, you know, Squid Game. Yeah. And... Because because that show was so popular, people really dug into the localization. Mm-hmm. Because certain Korean words, even if it's like the, the same word itself, it can have multiple meanings, mm-hmm. and then people were really digging into like, no, this 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 translation to English should be X Y and Z. Yeah. So I, you know that's a good example of why you know even one function
0: mm-hmm.
1: could go quite uh, deep. And, yeah, right. and another example was I remember when I was in um, Amazon Game Studios. Mm-hmm. I was responsible for our websites, Mm -hmm. and we had the primary languages, maybe just you know ten languages. Mm -hmm. Our VP of games was German, so Mm -hmm. he's a German American, or he just speaks German, and he wanted us to do a walkthrough of our entire experience. Could be the the Amazon.com page, Mm -hmm. uh, our our website like NewWorld.com, and all other customer or player facing materials. And he would just like he wants to go read it in German, and he found so many small things but i think i'm glad we corrected it because if you really are a gamer in germany you would know that we know what it's mm. like to be a gamer germany for example i had no idea but uh, the word community mm. uh, german players just use the english word community mm. so using the german translation of it they don't like it, it feels like we're out of touch if we use that word yeah yeah, uh, yeah. And I think just with the prevalence of all of these A games being mm-hmm. primarily made from U.S.-based uh, game studios mm-hmm. and just the prevalence of English, just mm-hmm. a lot of gamers just use a lot more English than, than I would expect. Yeah. yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. That's a great example. I think localization
0: is that in itself, as you said, is an art and a science, and you could do very little to a lot, right, even with that. And as you said, even some of the the text could be a pure translation uh, of an American slang or adapted so that the audience could actually understand it and appreciate it and make that a differentiator. If I could give also a a separate example of that being an art and and a science and a differentiator, I remember launching League of Legends in Japan. And as you know, Japan has a long history of video games, and a lot of great, amazing voice actors that are world class, we made a a conscientious choice to select specific people for specific champions. A lot of famous uh, people as well, and also recorded uh, the the recording itself with video and really publicized it and worked with it. And that's a differentiator. We could have gone with just random stuff and just purely translated. But why do Riot Games do that? Because it really cared about the local uh, players and customizing so their needs so that they really feel like this game was made for them. and it's it's an experience that they would cherish and play for a very long time. The opposite could have been done. just simple translations, right? But I think you could take it in long different many different perspectives and not many different ways and make a difference.
1: Yeah, I, I want to follow up there because I do think it's good to, take the bigger picture sometimes which is it's really such a you know such a pleasure to work in the entertainment broader entertainment industry especially video games um to, to even deal with things like this so but i have an example just like yours which is mm. i i signed a deal for a hello kitty show mm. and it, it was kind of complicated because Sanrio, already sold the rights to a french company uh, the tv rights but of course you're not going to do a deal without the brand owner kind of blessing it, especially for a japanese company oh. so uh and then you know budget was tight for a variety of reasons across all different parties involved in this deal and at the end of the day you know at the last at the 11th hour the deal almost the deal almost fell through because uh sanrio demanded that we use the original voice actress for hello kitty mm. and, and i forgot um her age but she was kind of quite advanced in age mm and I only mention that because we were thinking, you know, it's a show focused for kids, maybe find someone with like a, you know, a younger voice or whatnot. But mm. because this show is very, you know, it's 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 a Japanese brand, they want to make sure that it kept the the heritage. Mm. Then we somehow found the budget last minute to, to pick because she's a very famous voice actress, right? Mm. Because she's had many years. That's why I mentioned her age, because she's had a, a long career in voice acting. Mm. And then we had to add her in, in it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. But yeah, I never even knew that these were considerations, just like yep. localization, getting a language, getting the right Absolutely. voice actors. Okay, this is another big topic, I think specifically for you, uh, or, or maybe uh, this is a very interesting topic that I think you have specific insights about, which is you know the evolution of, of publishing games mm-hmm. and, and also in different uh, business models of free-to-play. Mm-hmm. And everyone essentially acknowledges that Riot Games was mm-hmm. the, the company that drove this forward. Mm-hmm. So perhaps uh, you could talk about any other interesting stories of, of why Riot decided to choose this model mm-hmm. and the challenges you, you may may have faced from, you know, distributors or maybe your, even your own investors, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. There's been um, multiple transitions in how people play games, right? Uh, you know, in, in the Western world and many parts of the world console was really big. And even on the PC side of things, these were, you know, back then when League of Legends uh, was about to launch, I mean, the web browser games was really huge as well. And a lot of them were you know, even box games in which you had to pay. And there was always an expansion pack along with that, right? Now you see a lot of mobile games globally. That's making a huge impact. So it is consist- constantly evolving. Having said that, I think the the objective and the strategies are, in my opinion, the same. Which is, depending on, on on the firm, in terms of Riot, it is really to bring the most epic player experiences for players around the world to be the most player-focused game company in the world. But the tactics of how you execute that by company and, and by different uh, strategies may may differ by different platforms as well. I personally don't think that's that important i do feel that a lot of them are commodities and, and that are that are obvious but it is really putting on being true to the mission being consistent uh, as an organization and really being player focused that makes an ultimate decision uh the difference the last part of your question about how riot was able to to make that leap you know, this, you know, obviously wasn't there. I think Mark and Brandon are the founders and I, I'm sort of, you know, sort of translating what, what I understand was the background then. But, you know, they've always had the vision as gamers to make sure that the players were in the center of the experiences, right? So rather than have players consistently pay to play more games or for additional powering items, they wanted to put the power into their hands of the gamers and have them create the experiences that are optimal for them, right? So if you look at the free-to-play model, it was very prevalent in Asia before it came to the Western world. But that was one model that they really wanted to bring because it was free. Not you know majority of the players don't have to pay, and you don't pay, and or you know you could you don't have to pay at all, but you could still be treated as well equally by playing the game. And when you purchase an item, you feel good about it because it's cosmetic. You're not forced to, to do it, nor do you want, if you want to play another additional game for five years later, you don't necessarily have to buy another box, right? That was the, the vision behind it, which really the power goes to the players and the player experience matters the most, right? And now I think to your point, it becomes a lot, it's a very common business model today in the Western world as well.
1: You know, what's interesting, combining a couple of our thoughts on, you know, free-to-play games, the success of them, and thinking about the, the, in publishing the entire player experience. So when, when I think about what's happened in the last two weeks, especially from Riot, it's kind of, um, it's a lot to digest, right? So all, all these players who've been playing this free-to-play game, obviously, they spend on microtransactions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped fund, like, Arcane. Uh-huh. and then when you when you're talking about publishing right like really uh-huh. kind of innovating on this model publishing right game games uh-huh. on epic store uh-huh. having jinx in fortnite uh-huh. i mean to some degree this might be even a good tweet right games feels a lot like it might be like amazon prime now where when i was working there and i work with the prime team a lot some of the research said that the customers were actually getting kind of confused because there were so many, so much prime benefits. Mm. And I feel the same way, especially about Riot Games right now, which is like, I'm just playing the game, right? And I, and I and actually, I, I still try to keep up with all the skins because I, I like it, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan I still. Go. I got uh, platinum this season and I'm playing Clash this weekend uh, with, with some former writers and some new people I've met. And uh, so now on top of like my actual player experience and like just in one game and there's multiple Riot Games, uh, now we get Arcane to show and now uh, I'm kind of tempted to even just try Fortnite. I actually, I'm not a Fortnite player, but just because Jinx is there, I feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I would give it a shot. And I could attest to you because, you know, the, the season ended November 15. I know this a lot because every season I'm like eager to get either like gold or platinum. So I track mm-hmm. the dates. I know that you know, Arcane came out. I think around like November 11th ish. Mm-hmm. Every ranked game I played from November 11th to November 18th, mm-hmm. there were so many Jace's in the mm-hmm. Arcane skin. <laughs> it's like no one ever played Jace this season, and all of a sudden, playing Jace. So I, mm-hmm. I love, and it, you know, I'm sure there's like numbers of data science to to, to mm-hmm. prove it all and demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. But I love that when the when the activation is so big that it's moving. You know, and Netflix published their numbers this week too. So like. Mm-hmm you could just tell when something's just so big and people are talking mm-hmm. about it like across the internet, mm. uh, like publishing that worked. <laughs> so exactly. so that that experience was published, I would say. Uh, exactly. You're absolutely right.
0: And first of all, and congratulations to all the folks at Riot Games that really worked hard to make this experience happen for the, the players. And second, I think to your point, it is, you know, it's, it's a comprehensive experiences like prime that. You know, players get for many for many things for playing the game and it, they choo- could choose to opt into many of these things. And I think that's a great example of being really, really player focused and a great example of publishing where the players may not have asked for it and the company doesn't necessarily have to do it and because it's a hard decision to invest a lot of money and time into things that you know, it may or may not work, but Riot Games has been on this. And they really wanted to create a comprehensive entertainment experience around the game, right? That includes animation series, music, merchandise, esports, and all this, and everything that touches Riot League or Arcane or, or Valor, whatever it may be. They want it to be a genre-defining experience, right? And this is not just a mantra that. That is on the wall. It is something that players feel and every employee of Riot Games, you know, aspire to and are passionate about. Plus, I think in the long run, it makes a lot of difference. And when it all comes together in an amazing publishing experience like this, that's a great publishing um, where it's very subtle, it's not in your face, but ultimately the players feel great about
1: it. They feel proud to be part of this community. I think you mentioned a point which I didn't catch, which was it felt like it was everywhere, but it was not in my face. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how you guys or, or how the team threaded a needle there, but that's actually an amazing point. I I'd never felt spammed. I just felt like, wow, I could turn the page and there's always something new. Yeah, Frankly, I'll predict this now. I think this is probably not just a big moment in, in, in Riot Games history, but people in the video game industry. This is this is like a moment in the video game industry. It's always been a dream of mine to actually like, you know, like co-write like a Harvard Business Review case study. <laughs> I feel like this would totally be uh, an awesome entertainment HBR case study, you know, mm-hmm. once people have, you know, digest the, the actual impact of things.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Look, and I think the team has done a phenomenal job and they're coming back to uh, what you mentioned, John, is it wasn't really in your face. And I think that is, in my opinion, a great video game publishing. It is not about why this product is so good, uh, why you know, this kicks ass, but it is really about uh, what, you know, how the experience is for you would be great and, and just how this enhances your experience as a player holistically right, and make, how it makes you feel as well being part of this community. And those are things that are are priceless. And I think that's an ingredient and and a result of a great publishing effort.
1: That's right. Okay, now let's turn back to international. I think another another like Riot innovation, kind of like free to play, is how you organized or how you treated international expansion. Mm -hmm. I frankly have not heard of any other companies who've attempted it the specific way Riot did. Could you talk more about that?
0: Sure, absolutely. I want to first qualify by saying there are many, many ways you could do international operations and expansions. Uh, So there is no one answer, right? And it is not a or, this or that. It is more of an and, which there are many, many spectrums of how you you do it. But I'll speak specifically about how Riot Games has done it. And I think a lot of the credit goes to Riot's uh, CEO, Niccolo, uh, Laurent, who you know spearheaded the international efforts um, early in the day, uh, and is still to this point. You know, it, when Riot launched League of Legends in 2009, you know, it, it was still growing, and, and it was relatively popular, uh, started to get popular in North America, and a little bit in, in the Western world as well. But there was an eagerness to get this game in the hands of many of the players around the world, because the vision was to make sure that players were, regardless of where you are, could enjoy the same experiences, the same amazing experiences. So there was really an eagerness to go into the international markets fast. And it was also intentionally designed so that it would be really, really global. And the game experiences, although public experiences may be different, the game experiences would be consistent around the world. So there were two two choices that were made. And I'm gonna talk about the two spectrums in which they would talk about. The more popular one is sort of centralized, decentralized. I would use more two different lenses. One is more of a strategic choice of being whether it, the consistency matters more versus customization. The other lens I would use is effectiveness versus efficiency, and I'll talk about both, right? Talk about, let's, let's talk about the, the consistency versus the customization. There are organizations that's made a strategic choice to be consistent around the world. You would see maybe A consumer good, or let's say a soda, right? That tastes the same, same branding, even the advertisements may be the same around the world, right? And that's a strategic choice. And as a result, the organizations that are on the ground locally, a lot of them are execution driven. That's a big sales organization, a retail organization, right? So that really works. So that's one way. There are other avenues you make a, a strategic choice to be a lot more customized. And again, I emphasize it's not an or, it's an and, right? It's a spectrum of what you customize versus what you stay consistent. Riot made a choice early on strategically that each of the local markets had to have a different publishing experience because they were all unique. What needed to be consistent was the game and the game itself. For example, all the champions look the same, the names are the same, the meta is the same. But how you experience it you know, whether that's esports or marketing had to be very, very customized for that experience, right? So they made that choice. So, and that's, that really, really worked in terms of becoming truly global and each of the players in around the world feeling, man, this is so local. This is made for me. This is, doesn't feel for The other lens that I mentioned was effectiveness versus efficiency, right? A lot of times, you know, you make a choice one way or the other, or sometimes both.
1: Right.
0: Early on in, in Riot's um, history, Riot made a decision to be more effective versus efficient. So there was a lot of debate when I joined back in 2011, whether they needed to be, for example, a lot of shared services out of Santa Monica, California, which is where the headquarters was back in the day. Because right? it was more efficient to do marketing out of uh, you know, LA or to do community, um, you know, have servers all here and whatnot. But the choice was to to be a lot more effective than efficient at the time because it allowed the customization to happen and the speed in which we have it. Now there's also a downside in which you have a lot more duplication of efforts in different territories. Now over time as Riot matured and have multiple products, now the efficiency play gained traction because it makes a lot more sense now because it is a bigger organization, a bigger scale. right? So those are choices that were were made, and I think there were different approaches and strategies for different parts of the product life cycle, right, and the company life cycle as well. So I think if I, I summarize, I think right early on in the day made a choice to be very customized and very effective for you know, and, and sacrifice slightly of the efficiencies. Thus, if you look at the results today, I would argue that it is one of the most global game companies in the world, potentially one of the most global companies around the world, in my opinion, and also have a very, very loyal and trusting player base, a customer base that have been with them for a long time that really feel good about being part of the Riot community.
1: That's such a good point. I mean, I, I cannot think of any other brand Or product or service I've used for so long, you know. I'm, I've been playing since probably 2010, and you know, my measurement of you know how engaged I am is is you know ranked games, (laughs) and I I think I've played ranked since like season three. I don't even know what rank what season number were maybe 11 or something, but it's there's a lot going on. Yeah. Okay. Here's another follow up question, which is, uh, I've never heard of another company do this but there may be companies who have done this but i think what another unique thing about riot international is that you or, or nicola or your team decided to make us a specific country
0: mm-hmm.
1: what was the decision behind that it was like a cultural idea and, and what was the impact
0: yeah. i think one of the most important things i you know before i answer that it, is really to have a clear vision and a mission that sounds really obvious but it it, and everything has to flow from it but most companies as much as they state the obvious don't do the obvious right so i think riot games has been generally consistent now having said that the mission for riot games is to be the most player focused game company in the world that means that regardless of where you are in the world you have an amazing experience we have dedicated people and, and experiences that are customized to that local audience right so in 2009, when Riot launched in North America and started expanding, it became a really, really global phenomenon. And each of the local offices out of North America had a specific dedicated team that was creating amazing experiences and also answering the tickets, doing esports, and all these kinds of things for that audience. North America at the time, this is before we created North America, was there was a central team that was also doing central work for the world and also helping all parts of the globe while also doing North America. Not a bad thing, right? Because those people were from North America, they're the audience, they do care about both and whatever they did centrally, a lot of times translated into North America as well. But coming back to our mission to be the most player-focused game company in the world, we felt that North American players also deserve that attention that was specific for them. Although whatever a central team made may relate to them, there wasn't always a dedicated team. So if you look at the central team, they're doing so much stuff. They were doing global work and wearing so many different hats. We felt that it was important as a player focused game company to dedicate a team that is dedicated to the interest of North American players. So that was really the thesis behind why we created the teams and it still exists today. Now, different companies do it differently. And if you're playing the efficiency game, it may not make sense, right? If you do the consistent path versus customized, it may may not make sense because it is consistent around the world. It's a strategic choice that Riot Games made. So I want to emphasize that there is no one answer for everything. But however, though in this Riot Games mission, I do believe still today that this is the right path to be the most uh, customer focused, right? But I do want to qualify that there's always a trade-off. right? There's always a trade-off in everything that we do. The trade-off that we made was some organizational confusion and some conflicts. right? So what we've seen, and you'll see in many organizations, is unclear roles and responsibilities, thus leading to conflicts between different teams. So we look at the central team that is consistent mostly with people from North America, who are gamers from North America, read English, and understand the market extremely well. They're doing global work and supporting also the rest of the world. And there is a North America team that is dedicated to North America. But if you look at it, I mean, these folks probably could do each other's job, right? So that was always a conflict of why are you doing that? Or I could do that. And sometimes you step on each other's toes and it creates conflicts that are, are not great, right? It, it escalates into something that is, is not so so meaningful, if you will. So those things are things that this model creates. However, having said that though, I think there's still benefits of having dedicated teams to specific audiences in this mission, uh, if you choose this strategic path, and also consistently and constantly making sure that you're emphasizing and updating the roles and responsibilities and the well around what you own, what you do not own uh, is, is really critical for, for this model to work.
1: I think what, you know, one theme you've provided throughout this episode is that there are always pros and cons Mm -hmm. and it's really about perspective. Right. And and I think, especially for, you know, maybe some of our younger audiences, sometimes you just may not have all the perspectives because you're not in the right place at the right time. You you may not be in like the decision-making room. Even for myself, you know, I really wasn't um, involved that much in org design until later in my career. Mm-hmm. So all of the things I felt that were happening to me earlier in my career, which uh, as a recipient, you could feel maybe confusion or anger. Mm-hmm. But uh, once you have to, once you're in that seat doing it for other people, it makes you really mm-hmm. start to, to wonder, you know, to, to, to get these things right. And That's that right. nothing is perfect. You can never get it right. We're 100% exactly. everyone satisfied.
0: Exactly. Um, exactly. you absolutely true. right. You're absolutely right. You know, I think in general in life, there's always a trade-off to a decision, right? And hopefully, you have the perspective uh, of of knowing what you're trading off, right? And and how to optimize the situation as well. But you know, sometimes you, you don't. But there's always a trade-off to things. And at Org Designs, I think you know there's always something good that comes with always something bad Uh, and it's hard for everybody to understand nor do leaders who make these decisions so with the teams make the right decisions but what's important i think is consistency right consistency in the the strategy and the tactics and the organization the people that you hire right when there is one thing said and, and another thing done which is very typical that's when the conflicts happen, inefficiencies happen, and results don't
1: necessarily yield, in what you intended. Great. Okay. Final question for you, maybe a fun question is: You have led uh, and worked at some, you know, some of the most iconic gaming uh, brands in the world, companies, Blizzard, Riot, etc. Well, there's some stories you can share about wins or maybe even fails from leading uh, international teams at these companies. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I probably have, uh, you know, hours and hours of stories, but I'll share a couple of things where I think in international uh, publishing and business that I think are, are important and maybe stories around that. Right. Um, it talked about picking a lane. Right, of those lenses and the spectrums, if you will. I think it's it's important from early on to recognize that in video games, and many things that we do are now, from the beginning, very global, right? especially in the world what we live in today. right? If you look at, for example, games, a lot of mobile games, it's very different from the package games to PC games where you needed a significant effort. You put it on app stores, and you don't necessarily need to stand up physical data settings anymore. right? So it is very global from the get-go to understand that your audiences are not just in your home market, but it's instantly going to be global. And your success depends on how you really understand and customize it for the audiences around the world, right? And, and create an organization that is consistent with this to, to your, the, the lanes that you're, you're taking. Um, give me a, I'll give you one example uh, that's still... You know that that I remember from launching Korea as you know the former country manager of Korea for Riot Games. You, know, we wanted to be the, the most player-focused game company in the world, and it was very clear from the beginning that we wanted to be the most player-focused game company in Korea as well, right? And the the PC cafes uh, was mostly where many players play back in the day. PC games, it's a PC cafe culture. Let's say a good half of the players play. In, in the cafes, and it's a, a great experience as if you haven't been to one where it's fun playing with your, your friends, you eat a lot, you know, f- great food and, and spend hours and hours there. And for comp- company that is from North America, you may or may not understand that that's the culture, right? Uh, but, you know, right, what the path we took was that this is where the players play, this is where they appreciate the experiences. We're really gonna go double down to this experience. So there are a couple of things that we did. One was early on, we created a PC cafe. uh, They call it PC bang in in Korea. PC bang loyalty program in which you give benefits. So we gave all all champions, gave extra IP and XP, um, and then also had a business model for the PC cafe owners to pay for these services uh, that in a reasonable price. So there was one story where, uh, we wanted to really understand the PC cafes and the owners, so our colleagues took a couple of week road trip uh, on a rented car. All over the nation, visiting from Seoul to all the way south in Busan, to all the provinces everywhere, sleeping in saunas and crappy motels. Back in the day, you know, we were a startup, so we, we did barely used any money. And, you know, visited PC cafes, played with the players and talk to the PC cafe owners to really understand and build the relationships from the ground up, right? And and that was really being local, being customized. Um, And another story that's related to PC cafes was early on when the game started exploring, uh, exploding and became a number one game, the PC cafe loyalty program was, was not necessarily functioning as well. It just didn't scale as much as a number of players. And plus, you know, our server capacity was not as high because we didn't think the game was going to be this popular. It became suddenly number one. So our games would go down on weekends. The PC Cafe loyalty programs would have errors. So what we did was, because we wanted to be very local, we wanted to make sure that the partners and the players felt really, really trusted uh, and also cared for. So we gave them, you know, sometimes IPs or PC cafes hours before you know, the hours they may or may not have lost, right? And this is also being very, very local because if we had to be very centralized in which we have to go back and forth between LA and Korea and have the, this multiple decision makers and understand what, what's happening in Korea, translate documents and whatnot, it may or may not have happened. But we took this model in which we were more, gonna be more effective and more customized and the local teams are empowered to make these decisions. Now, we were able to weather through all this storm and still continue to be, after 11 years, the number one game in Korea with close to 50% market share, which is unheard of, and breaking all records in every category. And I do believe it's beyond just creating a great game. It is because we chose a specific lane and were consistent with creating a path and a team and also being extremely player focused, right? and thinking about the players first before profit or anything else. Now, this is not a a solution that I'm subscribing for every company or every situation or every game. It worked for Riot. And I think the consistency from the mission down all the way to the players, uh, players' experience has really led to the success of Riot. And I do believe that there are many companies that could benefit from a similar approach it doesn't necessarily have to be the same answer, but an approach, a strategic approach of approaching the publishing experiences.
1: That's that's amazing. Well, well, thanks, Jen, for so much uh, kind of wisdom and stories you've shared uh, today. I think, you know, I picked up a couple of frameworks for my own toolkit, <laughs> and it's just always nice to hear about, you know, some of the stories that only uh, company uh, executives who've been here for a while may know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just such a fun experience working in the video game industry. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your experiences here.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure sharing uh, some of my stories. And I, I you know, look forward to hopefully you know, learning uh, from other people about their international experiences and about you know, publishing in general.